0: Good afternoon, it's Friday the 15th of September, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. And joining me by video link today, we've got Vanessa Bailey and Kevork Almassian. So uh, we're going to get kicked off with uh, the first meeting of the UK Uh, the UK's Biosecurity Leadership Council. And I'm sure everybody's wondering what that is. It's uh, brand new. Uh, It's uh, all about the UK's global leadership in the safe and responsible use of engineering biology. Uh, And this is going to be driven by this first ever meeting of the UK Biosecurity Leadership Council bringing together, according to the UK government, some of the UK's brightest minds from the worlds of science, uh, research, and business. Uh, So There you go. Uh, Engineering biology, they say, is uh, one of the uh, most exciting uh, new frontiers in science. It describes the application of rigorous engineering principles to biology, enabling the construction of a new or redesigned uh, biological system such as cells and proteins. It has the potential to change the way we grow food, create medical treatments, and produce sustainable fuel that we need to run our cars, homes, and offices. So it is the gift that keeps on giving. So uh, imagine who might be involved with this? Uh, well, of course, usual suspects, King's uh, College London, uh, University of Cambridge, GSK, uh, AstraZeneca, Oxford Nanopore, um, the likes of the UK Bioindustry Association and the Centre for Long-Term Resilience. Uh, But I thought the most uh, amusing aspect of this was the fact that uh, uh, Google DeepMind is going to be involved with this as well. Uh, Now, there's going to be a lot of money for it. So here is uh, a UK research and innovation uh, grant of £102 million uh, for synthetic biology for growth. Um, So because the UK is a leader in engineering, uh, it's going to be... Uh, spending all this money uh, invested through the UK, sorry UK Research and Innovation Synthetic Biology for Growth program. Uh, here's another program, Engineering Biology Mission Hubs and Mission Awards, another £73.6 million uh, for the same type of thing. So um, how do you feel about that, Vanessa? Uh, biologically engineered food, are you keen to, to taste that?
1: <laughs> In a word, No. <laughs> Okay I mean, it, it, you know, we're just heading into this kind of weird alternative reality where everything that we eat, consume, breathe, use is going to be engineered. It's I don't know, it's it's horrifying, actually.
0: Well, they say that this is going to help shape the uh, way advances in engineering biology are governed uh, to guard against potential risks while ensuring the UK's world-leading biology, health, and life sciences innovators are supported to explore, invent, and continue to thrive. So that uh, must make feel every, everybody feel fantastic. Uh, okay, let's move on to um, Libya and the flooding over there. Now, this particular video clip has been doing the rounds uh, which shows just how quickly uh, the floodwaters uh, move. Now CCTV footage, of course, uh, and so there's no audio uh, with it. We'll we'll hear uh, some audio on a similar clip from Greece uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, and of course, uh, this is being blamed on climate change. Just the ferocity of this is incredible. With the cars being uh, moved. Uh, so quickly and so easily. So the latest updates from this morning are that the uh, numbers of dead uh, are sitting around 11,300 with another 10,000 people still missing. Um, and uh, so with that 11,000 that are believed to have died, this is a number that's come from the Red Crescent. Uh, the, the, the number that was being pushed around earlier in the day was 20,000 people uh, is the likely uh, death toll at the end. Um, so, of course, people blaming this, as we said, on climate change. I wonder who? Well, let's have a look. Uh, here's David Miliband, uh, of course, former leader of the Liberal Party and currently head of the International Rescue Committee. The devastation from Storm Daniel in Libya has been enormous, at least 5,000 killed. This, of course, was published yesterday uh, uh, and 30,000 displaced. Uh, years of conflict. We're going to come on to that in a second have eroded the country's ability to respond to increasing climate disasters. So this is very much uh, the narrative that it's all climate change. Uh, And Vanessa sent me through uh, this particular uh, clip earlier on, um, this drone clip showing the devastation afterwards. Now, of course, uh, there are calls for investigation and so on. But the question is, why has this actually happened? Um, Well, it's hardly surprising that it's happened because uh, a year ago, Uh, This gentleman, uh, Mr. Doctor, rather, Ashur, uh, had put out a a scientific paper uh, in which he said this, the dams are in poor condition, a major flood would likely, uh, would be likely to cause one of the two dams to collapse if a huge flood happens, the result will be catastrophic for the people of the Wadi and the city. Um, So again, the question has been asked. the question to be asked is, Is what has been the cause of this? And if we bring Miliband's tweet back on years of conflict, he says. But of course, what caused the years of conflict? And Vanessa, we've got to say, uh, this basically comes down to the UK, France, and all the other countries that were involved in the bombing uh, of uh, Libya, uh, where they targeted uh, the, the water infrastructure of the country in 2011
1: yeah i mean you know this is this is the result of the war crime of the nato aggression against libya and very much in the same way of course uh, nato member states targeted as in 2017 they targeted the tabqa dam uh, on the euphrates with a 2000 pound bomb and threatened the lives of 10000 civilians living in the area and it was only because of a hurriedly arranged ceasefire and Syrian engineers going onto the dam to repair it. So, I mean, it's nothing, it's really nothing new. This is all down to the NATO destruction or NATO member state destruction um, of essential infrastructure in the countries they target.
0: Yes. Uh, And Kvork, maybe I could welcome you you to the program at this point and, and see what your thoughts are, because, I mean, what we've got to keep in mind is that Libya up until the bombing in 2011 was uh, basically had probably the best uh, infrastructure, uh, certainly the best water infrastructure in north in the whole of North Africa and and what we did effectively by bombing the country as we did at the time was to bomb it back into the stone Age. so there was no question that, that, that with the be- even with the best will in the world, uh, Libya as a country was going to be able to um, maintain the infrastructure to a level that was that w- would be necessary.
2: Actually, I was reading an article today on the Irish Times, and they also say that uh, human errors, uh, exaggerated or contributed in the deaths of lots of people in Libya because there was no competent reaction uh, before and after this disaster that happened in, in Libya. But the it's so disingenuous to see that a lot of uh, mainstream outlets aren't even mentioning the real cause of the chaos in in Libya. They say there are human errors and they say that Libya uh, is now in internal infighting and the infrastructure is destroyed. But the root cause of this this misery in Libya is because of NATO's intervention in 2011. And uh, the other day, a few days ago, I was sitting with the spokesperson for Gaddafi here in Berlin. And the stories that he told me are goes go in parallel with uh, lots of stories that we heard and we documented in Syria. It was a very dirty war against Libya, against the Libyan people, for them being an advanced developed country, uh, progressive in one way or another in, in the northern African continent. And um, Africa was an example to show uh, the Africans that uh, uh, the the people in the continent do not need the uh, so-called humanitarian aid, the so-called assistance that uh, many Western governments brag about on social media platforms day and night. Libya can be self-sufficient, can govern themselves, but when you destroy a centralized government, and you fragment the country on three different lines and you install two three different governments and parliaments in one country of course this would be the uh, the one of the results of what could have happened for example when vanessa mentioned altabka airbase the united states refused to acknowledge that they bombed altabka uh, uh sorry waterdam and uh, but even Even the New York Times acknowledged that they were the members of top-secret U.S. Special Operations Unit called Task Force Nine. Those are the ones who uh, detonated uh, Syria's uh, dam, and they were very close uh, to causing a huge humanitarian disaster. Again, they, they could have ended up by murdering tens of thousands of people uh, in Syria, but they, um, uh, for, fortunately, this uh, plan was, uh, was failed. But in Libya nowadays, I would say the media is very, very dishonest with the people by simply not even mentioning that the current situation in Libya and the, uh, why the state institutions are paralyzed. Why there is uh, all this chaos and infighting, and the infrastructure is destroyed? The moment they point their finger to the um, to the source of the wound, everybody will understand that NATO was not um, a force of peace in Libya and North Africa.
0: Yes, thank you very much for that. And let's just bring uh, one example of that because we've got uh, this tweet uh, that Vanessa sent over to me uh, earlier. And Vanessa. Uh, Uh, Nina is saying here, it's so enjoyable. The BBC got slapped with a community note about Libya. This is on Twitter or X, uh, of course. As you can see, their coverage mentions Libya's former prosperity and the current uh, devastation, but conveniently leaves out the cause of the status change, uh, the utter destruction uh, of the 2011 intervention by everyone's favorite ever so defensive alliance. NATO. And uh, so I thought that was uh, quite appropriate that uh, uh, Twitter had put that notice on and uh, a bit of revenge, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the BBC deserves it. And and as people pointed out, the majority of the media is conveniently leaving out um, the, the NATO member state damage.
0: Yes. Okay, so let's uh, move over to Greece then, Vanessa. And well, this actually looking for uh, Greece floods on uh, the search engine of choice this morning. Very, very little coverage in the, uh, in the UK press. Uh, some in the EU, but not in the UK.
1: No, it's quite extraordinary. Since these floods started, which was about a week ago, um, there has been very little, very scant reporting on it. Um, and, and what I've basically relied on almost entirely is uh, news that I'm receiving from Greek activists and Greek community media outlets and some Greek mainstream media outlets. So some of the translations are a little strange because they're directly translated by Google. I've changed some of them. So first of all, uh, Thessaly, the fear of the food crisis. Now, this is very in, a very important factor in these floods. Um, It is being described as a a disaster of biblical proportions affecting fields, animals, equipment, machinery, supplies, irrigation projects, agricultural road networks, product warehouses, livestock units, trees, and crops. So let's just have a look, um, I think, where Thessaly is in relation to the rest of Greece. We pointed it out last week, but it's effectively to the north of Athens, although Athens actually was also affected by the floods. And the two main areas that I'm going to talk about are Kraditsa and Larissa, which is just to the uh, kind of the northeast of Karditsa. So moving on. Uh,
0: We've got a little bit of video.
1: Yes. So this is video with sound uh, of the start of the floods. And I've left the sound because it, it is really quite horrifying imagine being there it's only about 18 seconds so just roll the video And then the next video that we're gonna see is um, aerial video that was taken a couple of days ago. Um, And I think what's interesting, I'll kind of talk over this, but this shows the extent of the flooding. Um, Hundreds of thousands of hectares of farmland destroyed effectively and machinery, animals, livestock. Um, It is reported by many activists that I'm speaking to that the, the Greek government is refusing aid from the EU and the activists on the ground are saying that's because they don't want people to be here from outside Greece to see the devastation and also to discover the bodies that are clearly under this, uh, this flood. Um, it's being described as the biggest disaster since 1940. There will be no harvest this year. Corn, fruits, cotton, vegetable and fodder is destroyed. Stored grains have been lost, so that means no crop in 2024. Animal stocks are severely depleted and will be very difficult to replace. Thousands of livestock animals have been killed and their bodies are still being... So, so dead bodies are in this water also, whether it's animals, human, rats, excreta. Uh, so this, this water itself is uh, severely polluted. These are just a couple of photos from some of the rescue efforts, just going through them quite quickly. Um, And this again on the right shows the the, the extent of the flooding. Um, And if we just move on quite quickly through this. Um, So what I also want to mention is the way that the Greek government is dealing with the victims of this flood in a very uh, inhumane way in a very abusive way. So flood victims, the majority, of course, are agricultural workers and farmers, have been asked to pay to receive compensation. So farmers and stock breeders who've already paid their staggering premiums to their insurance companies have been devastated. And we'll just see livestock farmers with 200 dead sheep were asked to pay in advance 400 euros. Farmers with 100 acres of cultivation were asked to pay in advance, again, 220 euros. Other farmers pay two euros per acre to apply for compensation. So this is even before they receive any compensation. Um, and here again, the government legitimizes black heartedness. As I said, this is translation from the Greek in water for the affected. So basically what they've done, instead of giving free bottled clean water to the victims of this flood, um, they are setting a ceiling of two and a half euros per six pack. So in other words, they're not providing free aid the victims. Bad weather, um, they don't recruit, they don't use hotels to house those that have been displaced by the floods. What they do is to basically kick out refugees from refugee centres in the area. If we move on to the text of the article, um, the refugee structures are being recruited by the government to house the flood victims of the Thessalian plain. The plan calls for the evacuation of the camp in Kutsohero by about 900 refugees living in the structure in order to bring in um, those that have been displaced. Instead of providing hotels and temporary housing, they're basically kicking out refugees and replacing it with uh, indigenous refugees. Quite appalling from the Greek government. And then moving on. Um, also, it's become apparent that there was a 2017 study, and even studies from before that, from 2007 onwards, that warned that the Thessaly water division is Greece's most vulnerable, as flood zones cover 31.2% of the area. And the study basically was not acted upon; it wasn't updated as it should be according to European regulations. European Commission has therefore appealed against Greece since February 2022 for violation of European legislation. So the authorities, again, just as they did with the forest fires, had neglected the areas that, that were hit by the fires, also neglected the areas that have been hit by the floods. So Terra in Larissa, if you remember Larissa, is to the uh, northeast of Praditsa, almost 12 meters from Pinos-Kromeni, and divides the country in two. Including the military base where there are images of the helicopters underwater, um, and then moving on. Um, and there is new revelations about breaking the dams, effectively the water barriers. Concern only for Karditsa and how the waters were diverted um, to effectively uh, devastate the plains around Karditsa. So we'll see why shortly. Um, this is the blog that I've relied on before for information. So from organized arson to organized floods, the Greek lockdown punta becomes the EU's poster boy for climate change. Now, interesting here, Mike, because we haven't actually seen legacy media jump on board with the climate change headlines. And we might know why very shortly. But if we move on again. Um, so basically, um, there are claims, there are plaintiffs claiming that various dams, I think now it's up to four dams, were deliberately either dynamited or uh, opened to divert the water away from Kraditsa into the plains, into the um, floodplains, which are mostly agricultural and livestock areas. Um, and as he says, if that is the case, then the agricultural area was removed from production for a reason to ensure a shortage of food and to fulfill EU climate change, i.e. net zero quotas. And there was no intervention by the state apparatus in any dam in the area which caused water redirection, said the head of um, the climate uh, uh, sector uh, in the Greek government. He claimed that that was fake news and conspiracy theory. So let's see if it was moving on again. So I'm just going to show you again where Karditsa is on the map. Moving on quickly to the next image, which shows very clearly Karditsa at the bottom there, that the waters were very clearly diverted away from Karditsa towards the floodplains there. Larissa was also heavily affected. Um, and now if we move on, we can see uh, why. Uh, Thessalia area, which got flooded, um, provides 38% of Greek cotton, 52% of tomatoes, 20% of cow's milk, of goat's milk, 40% of soft cheese, 25% hard cheese, 18.5% of beef, and 41% exports of milk-based products. So it's a very, very important area, both to Greece and to um, Greek trade. So let's come on to why uh, the government might have taken the decision to divert the waters from Kurditsa. the big US plans for Thessaly, Just as we talked about at Alexandropolis um, a couple of weeks ago, reference the fire and the NATO expansion of its military base in Alexandropolis, the U.S. decision to invest more in the air base of Larissa and to upgrade it with the aim of creating the permanent basis of the administration of the American Air Force Europe, Africa, while it has provoked the reaction of the Larissa Peace Committee in a statement. So that was in 2022. They have invested many millions of dollars in support, turning Thessaly into an American native base. Then let's see. So in November 2021, Erdogan, president of Turkey, said that U.S. military bases in Greece are so many that they cannot be measured. Greece has become practically an outpost of America. Of course, Erdogan has, um, let's say, uh, alternative agendas behind his words. But nevertheless, it appears to be true. And then this is when it gets quite interesting. So a foreign company is committed to 10,000 acres in Kroditsa for um, photovoltaics for uh, solar panels. Let's see who this company is. Uh, Israelis in Thessaly with five large photovoltaics, if completed, the projects will be able to allegedly produce clean and cheap energy for more than 350,000 households. Moving on. Uh, Astrom uh, is a construction company based in Israel that is now expanding into Europe using Greece as its, um, its, its pilot scheme for solar energy in Europe to provide um, solar energy to Greece and to Europe. So Astrom Renewable Energy co-developed solar projects in Greece, moving on again. The producers who spoke to us claimed that the company representatives had stated that their goal was to commit uh, 10,000 acres uh, to the construction of solar energy, and that will begin in 2024. What is interesting is that farmers that applied for solar energy were turned down because they didn't have the money to invest in this. So Israel taking priority over, over local farmers. Moving on. Um, this is an important lesson that came out of this, and this came from a Greek uh, friend of mine uh, who's commenting on Facebook. During um, the floods, authorities also visited the scene of the Tempe rail crash, which was six months ago in the same area, in the Th- Thessaly area. Um, and during the visit, they found exposed human limbs that hadn't been cleaned from or identified from the scene of the crash. Um, and as my friend uh, pointed out, she said, at Tempe, passengers helped passengers. During the fires, citizens helped citizens. And during the floods, villagers helped villages. We don't need the state. What certainly seems to be going on in Greece is that Greece is being destroyed and prepared um, to be the energy hub for Greece, uh, for Greece and for Europe, to avoid uh, or to freeze Russia out of the energy market for the EU, um, quite horrific stories now coming out. Also,
0: okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. I think I think we'd like to uh, talk a, lot of, a l- little bit more about this in extra because this whole mm. notion of reappropriation of land is something that lots of people seem to be talking about, and there certainly seems to be something uh, to discuss there. I mean, do you think that that, that is uh, a realistic, uh, a serious proposition that that's what's going on?
1: Well, judging by the reaction of the Greek activists and um, legal teams that are now dealing with it, and are, I saw today very quickly that there is a case for murder if the government uh, did deliberately divert the waters away from Korditsa into the floodplains. Um, And also the fact that the government, again, as I said, it neglected the forestry areas, uh, which then easily caught fire recently. Um, But they also neglected um, sort of help and preparation for the floodplains to prevent a disaster of this magnitude. And so you have to ask why. They received the funds from the EU to carry out um, the various works that they needed to prepare for this kind of, uh, of disaster. And yet they didn't. So I, I guess you have to very clearly ask questions. Um, whether the evidence is there, I guess the court case will will bring more to light.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you can join us there, become a member of the community. That'd be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at uh, the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, especially ukcolumn.org and UKColumnExtracts.co.uk. Uh, now, I want to remind everybody of uh, this event, On Guard for the Liberty of Mankind, taking place in Sweden. Uh, this is on Saturday, the 30th of September, 2023. Uh, This is one day of a three day event. And uh, anybody that's in the area or would like to go there, there are it is uh, possible to get tickets to join that event live, uh, but otherwise it will be live streamed from Sweden by Oracle Films. uh, And you can see the various, uh, well, many of the names that will be taking part in that on screen at the moment. If you'd like more details, uh, go to doctorsappeal.com and you can find the more information about that there. Okay, uh, let's move on then, and uh, well, we're going to talk about Armenia for a second. Now, uh, Vanessa mentioned this last week, before we get started, I just thought we should uh, bring the map on screen and uh, give everybody an idea of the area that we're talking about here. So uh, obviously the red area is Russia, uh, but if we zoom in on Armenia in blue there, and Azerbaijan uh, to the right hand side of it in green, Uh, this is the area that we're talking about. Um, And uh, well, over the last week, uh, we're seeing uh, headlines like this appearing in the mainstream press is Armenia turning to the West. So this is from uh, Wednesday uh, in Radio Free Europe, we all know what Radio Free Europe is. uh, But they're saying that for centuries, Armenians have had a tight relationship with Russia, but those ties have come under strain over the past year and a half as Russia bogged down in Ukraine has largely stood aside uh, as its Armenian ally faces ever increasing pressure from Azerbaijan. Uh, and this narrative is even appearing in the Russian press. Uh, so this is a TASS TAS article, uh, Pashinyan, uh, changing country's politics to align with the West, according to experts. Uh, so uh, I want to uh, welcome, uh, sorry, Sorry, Stephanie. I want to welcome Kavork uh, back on screen uh, and uh, just get some uh, a view of from you about these headlines that are appearing, Kvork, and uh, uh, and let's see where that takes us in terms of conversation.
2: Actually, while uh, the world can see the shift uh, in the balance of power in favor of uh, Russia and China, an increasing number of countries are joining uh, the BRICS uh, economic uh, bloc. And uh, other, I would say, security architectures in uh, Eurasia, such as the CSTO, such as the Shanghai Corporation uh, Organization. Um, Unfortunately, in 2018, um, just like in Georgia and in Ukraine, there was a a USAID, NED, Soros-backed color revolution in Armenia, which brought... um, A journalist uh, who used to write in uh, yellow newspapers, we call it yellow newspapers uh, because uh, they um, highly rely on uh, controversial clickbait information just to uh, create hype in the society. So he wasn't even, Pashinyan wasn't even a real journalist, in my opinion. He uh, comes to power after huge, I would say, media support through the NGOs in uh, Armenia that are funded by USAID, NED, and George Soros. And the moment he came to power, I warned the Armenians that Armenia will start uh, shifting toward the West. And it was called a conspiracy theory, and uh, today we can see the result of this color revolution. And that is Pashinyan is now doing uh, a very clear and uh, uh, publicly declared U-turn toward uh, the West. And he invited uh, American forces to uh, Armenia for joint uh, training with the uh, Armenian forces although all the hardware technology of the Armenian forces are from Russia all types of the, the Armenia doesn't have any sort of weaponry from the United States it's all from either from the Soviet era or from Russia I'm not saying that uh, Armenia should be a client state for uh, for Russia or for the United States, but what I'm, I'm I can clearly see that this is a self-harming uh, policy. Armenia is shooting uh, to its own leg uh, by this U-turn because, in my opinion, the interest of Armenia is to have a strategic friendship with Russia at the same time to have a good trade relationship with the West. Uh, but if Armenia wants to shift, uh, uh, its foreign policy and align itself and embed with the NATO side, um, w- w- the result for it, it will be that Armenia will lose more, more territories to Azerbaijan, which has a superior army which is a very rich country and uh, most of the countries including russia and the west are um, in a honeymoon uh, with uh, with azerbaijan and azerbaijan played very smart in the past decade one and two and it diversified uh, the relationship between the east and west and now everybody is uh, wanting to pursue good relationship with azerbaijan while Uh, Armenia is antagonizing Russia in the Southern Caucasus, which is a sphere of influence for Russia. And let's remember that both Azerbaijan and Armenia, they were uh, formerly Soviet uh, countries. So uh, I think the smart thing to do here for Armenia is to diversify its relationship instead of becoming a pawn for NATO, which uh, the experience in Ukraine proved that uh, NATO uh, is ready to use Armenia uh, just like they use the Ukrainians to the last standing person there in order to fight against the uh, Russian Federation. And this is quite clear to me because The goal of Pashinyan government is to kick uh, the Russian uh, forces out of uh, Armenia because they have a military base there, and also uh, the peacekeeping forces who are standing between Azerbaijan and uh, and the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, where Azerbaijan wants to ethnically cleanse the 120,000 Armenians in Karabakh who are trapped now in this uh, um, independent region. And uh, Azerbaijan basically blocked the only life route uh, for the Nagorno-Karabakh, which is called Lachin Corridor. And by doing so, uh, the people there, 120,000 people, are starving, and nobody is able to um, to lift this uh, blockade on, on the Armenians there. But I would say if the Armenian government isn't trying to help the Armenians of Karabakh and isn't... Uh, pursuing uh, the foreign policy that can serve the interests of the Armenians there. the In my opinion, the only one, the, the only side that Armenians should point fingers and blame now is the Pashinian government.
0: Um, and so, I mean, uh, it would be a bit of a grim uh, look into the future, but uh, is it your opinion that, that if things uh, continue the way they're going, we could see uh, a Ukraine-like situation happening there?
2: I think uh, the Russians have excessive power in uh, the southern Caucasus. I think the Russians do not need Armenia as a, an allied country now because they, uh, they have a very strong partner now in Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan is able to... Um, to present and, and um, the national security, uh, gu- uh, to give national security guarantees for, for Russia and also the interests of Russia in the region. Armenia is sandwiched between Azerbaijan and uh, Turkey. And at the same time, uh, uh, Armenia is pursuing, an, an, uh, let's say, hostile policy toward Russia. So what could go wrong, right? In my opinion, uh, if the Russians uh, withdraw their hands from the Armenian file, we will see that uh, Armenians will be swallowed by, uh, by Turkey and Azerbaijan. They are the weaker side in this equation. And no side, not even NATO, not uh, uh, even Russia, are willing to intervene because um, you have to help yourself uh, before others come and help you. And the current policy in in Yerevan is shooting themselves in the leg. And therefore, um, there could be the scenario of Ukraine, but I don't think the Russians are even interested in intervening militarily to secure their uh, interest there, because one, they have already secured their interest through Azerbaijan, and two, Uh, Iran is the only party there who is willing and declaring that they want to intervene militarily if Azerbaijan tries to change the borders uh, between Armenia and Iran, because Azerbaijani demand is to open a new trade route uh, on the borders between the borders of uh, um, Armenia and Iran, and by doing so, they will uh, seal the borders between Armenia and Iran. So it's in, now it's in Iran's interest to intervene there and not in Russia's.
0: Oh, okay. And uh, thinking back to the map then, uh, between uh, Armenia and Russia, of course, is Georgia. We, the, we had the incident in 2008 in, uh, in Northern Georgia. I mean, where's, where does Georgia sit in this whole uh, situation?
2: Georgia is mostly aligned with the uh, Western bloc uh, in this, and they don't have good relationship uh, with Armenia for a very long time. But uh, uh, now the current uh, situation in Georgia is similar to the uh, to the situation uh, in Armenia, and uh, all in all, this uh, Eastern European bloc, especially in Georgia and Armenia, now, uh, the current uh, Armenian leadership, they are increasingly and uh, let's say rapidly, but surely aligning themselves with the Western and, interest. and this is harming their own, uh, uh, in my opinion, their interest because this country's position, geographically speaking, is uh, either in the Southern Caucasus or in Eastern Europe, and this is the um, the uh, the background or the playground of uh, Russia there. And, um, if, if uh, both uh, Armenia and Georgia want to continue in their current path, I think we will see more destabilization in the region because uh, the security, they will need a new security architecture there. They will need a new reformation of their uh, armies, their security apparatuses, if they want to um, move toward the West. This is not something that could be done in a day or two. These countries and the people in these countries must understand that the geography uh, plays a role, politics plays a role, and also the social, uh, um, uh, let's say the societies in these countries play a role. And if you see uh, these two countries, Georgia and Armenia, naturally speaking, these countries should revolve in the orbit of Russia. And at the same time, have good relationship with the West. So, if any of these countries uh, become a pawn to any of the superpowers, then uh, there will be destabilization, and there will be an attempt to use these countries against the other superpower. And uh, Armenia, for a very long time, played smart, and they were strategically aligned with uh, Russia. And in to the uh, until two thousand and eighteen, only in two thousand and eighteen, when Pashinyan came to power, he. Um, uh, eliminated all the pro-Russian officers, generals from from the army, from the security apparatuses and exposed its national security to uh, Azerbaijan. So when Azerbaijan attacked Armenia or Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020 and recently also in Armenia, the Russian side didn't come for a help because uh, the Russian side knows that Pashinyan is trying to trap Russia also into conflict in the South Caucasus in order to make Russia busy and Military fronts and not only in Ukraine, which is the uh, American demand from Pashinyan to drag Russia into another bloody conflict, but this time in the Southern Caucasus.
0: Yes, okay. Thank you very much, uh, Kavork. We will talk more about that later as well. Uh, but in the meantime, then, Vanessa, let's come to the other uh, front with Russia, perhaps uh, that's Syria.
1: Yeah, um, just a very quick report today to point out. We talked about the three Republican congressmen that entered Syria illegally, of course, through a crossing that is manned by terrorist groups that are actually under sanctions by the Biden administration. And so very recently, we also talked about the unrest in the northeast, the U.S. occupied zone, um, where, of course, on an almost daily basis, the U.S. is stealing uh, Syria's oil. Uh, U.S. officials visit Syria's Deir al in bid to defuse the Arab tribal unrest. The Arab tribes have effectively risen up against the Kurdish separatist occupation of the northeast. So uh, very familiar to see a U.S. delegation appear in the northeast to try and uh, settle the situation down. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Syria, Ethan Goldrich, and Major General Joel B. Val. Uh, heads the alleged coalition against Islamic State. Of course, as I constantly explain, ISIS is nothing more than another proxy of the United States inside Syria and Iraq. Um, They met with Arab tribal leaders and the Kurdish uh, Contra commandos and agreed to address local grievances and de-escalate violence as soon as possible and avoid casualties, the State Department said. Of course, it's not their place to enter northeast Syria um, as uh, Syrian officials also condemned U.S. delegations' illegal visit to northeastern Syria, um, because of course it, it um, violates the country's sovereignty and state integrity. But the U.S. has consistently done that um, since 2011. Syria, uh, according to a statement put out by Foreign Minister uh, Faisal Mekdad, support the Arab tribesmen in their battle against the Kurdish contras because, of course, they perceive this as an opportunity to uproot the Kurdish contras from the Northeast. During this period, the U.S. occupation forces looted and smuggled more Syrian resources to their bases in Iraqi territory, taking out a load of about 95 tankers of oil from the Al Jazeera fields during the past 24 hours. So the theft continues um, moving on. And the clashes renew between the U.S.-backed proxy so-called rebel tribes, the Kurdish Contras uh, in northeast Syria and um, the, the Arab tribes them, themselves, as we mentioned. But then I want to quickly look at the map of Syria, and I'm sure Kivot will, will comment on this. Going from west and then going around it as a clock, we had two Israeli attacks in the last two days um, during the afternoon, actually, which is fairly unusual followed by another one. So first of all was to southern Tartus, to to a military base there, which killed two Syrian Arab army soldiers and injured others. The missiles were fired from international waters to the west in the Mediterranean, uh, off the coast of Syria. And then from northern Lebanon, they targeted southern Hamar, the the second area that you can see. Now, of course, these two attacks are... um, have two uh, reasons. One is to create a gap in the Syrian air defense capability to enable Israel, as it perceives, to target what they consider to be the strategic development centers inside Syria, developing both defensive and offensive weapon capability. But at the same time, if you look at the area in Idlib, which is occupied by al-Qaeda and its various affiliates, Um, you'll see that there has been an increase in military activity to the west of Aleppo, um, to the south of Idlib and the north of Kamar, and to the north of Latakia. So the Israeli attacks never are coincidental. They often come in tandem with uh, either advance by the Syrian Arab Army against terrorist positions or attacks by the terrorists against Syrian Arab Army positions. Then if you uh, go around the map, as I've mentioned before, Syria at the moment, what the U.S. cartel is trying to achieve, of course, is a, is a shrinking Syrian central state. So the northern areas are controlled by uh, U.S. proxies, the Kurdish contras, and Turkish proxies, which are basically derivatives of the Free Syrian Army, the Muslim Brotherhood extremists. Coming round the map again, uh, you'll see Deir um, interesting that the Kurdish Contras currently seem to be withdrawing from this area, from the Deir area. area. Um, and then coming down to Al-Bukamal, which I pointed out quite, quite frequently, um, is the area that the U.S. wants to gain control of, because this is the uh, opening for Iraq or the border crossing for Iraq and Iran to send humanitarian relief into Syria. So I've drawn the yellow line to show where the U.S. wants to gain control to basically close off much of that eastern um, border area, because, of course, it has control at Al-Qanif, its military base, and at Rukban, alleged refugee camp, which is another recruitment center for ISIS and various extremist groups. Then coming to the south, as I've drawn there, the red line showing the area's that are obviously uh, under attack by uh, the forces of uh, proxy forces of Israel and the the U.S. alliances we've talked about in Sueda and Dara. There have been two assassinations of fairly high level officials in Dara in the last ten days, and in Sueda, the protests, which are basically sponsored by Israel and the U.S. and power multiplied by Israel and the U.S. and Western media, are continuing. Um, there have been attempts to, to take over um, official centres and institutions there in the last few days. So that, I think, just gives you a very quick update of what is going on here.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you very much. Now, let's come back to the UK then uh, and you, Les. Uh, and, uh, well, of course, today is, or, well, I'm sorry, Sunday is the day that uh, if you're in Wales, uh, anything that was a 30 mile per hour uh, zone is going to become a 20 mile per hour zone. Um, so how has this been presented in the BBC? Just to take one example, because this is uh, right across the mainstream press, of course. Uh, 20 miles per hour, wheel sp- uh, speed limit, sat-nav warning ahead of change. So you can't rely on your sat-nav to tell you where the 20 mile an hour zones are. Uh, but of course, the reason that this is being done, uh, according to the BBC, is because of stopping distances and uh, because there's so many people dying on the roads, so we've got to reduce the speed limit uh, in order to uh, reduce casualties on the roads. Uh, now, uh, other uh, media around the world, uh, and if we look uh, to the EU and France in particular, are being a bit more honest about the situation. Uh, here's uh, Euronews saying Paris puts its speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour, which is roughly 20 kilometers, 20 miles per hour, in a bid to protect the climate. Uh, and that, of course, is, uh, is what is really going on here. This is about... Uh, um, protecting the climate, shall we say, and it uh, leads into ultra low emission zones. Of course, this issue of ultra low emission zones uh, around the country are becoming a major issue for local councils as uh, the debate over that continues to rumble on. Now, in London, of course, uh, where the, most of the activity is, uh, there have been a couple of court cases. Uh, and uh, well, this crowdfunder had been r- raising money for a court case to stop uh, the ULS expansion in Russia. Uh, sorry, in London, Uh, £23,654 had been raised. Uh, That was an expanded uh, stretch target. So uh, they did well and they got the money they needed to take the court, the case. uh, And that was in the uh, high court yesterday. Uh, Unfortunately, it did not uh, win. Uh, And this was the judge, uh, Mrs. Justice Cockerell. Let's uh, just bring her uh, a bit bigger on screen. Uh, she decided that uh, really there was no prospect of her actually being able to um, impose a reversal of the policy in London, so she threw the case out. Uh, she said that uh, um, sorry, the case. I'll, I'll just mention the case was brought by Chris White and Ed, Gre- Ed Gregory, who were uh, responsible for that crowdfunder, uh, and they were arguing in court that the that city can uh, lack the legal powers to impose charges on drivers. So their claim said the decision of the mayor to expand ULES was unlawful and that the mayor's stated objective in making the decision to impose road charging to clean up London's toxic air and tackle the climate emergency is not an objective mandated by the Greater London Authority Act 1999. So uh, Judge uh, Cockrell said that uh, the costs involved in making this reversal would be enormous uh, and that the, that uh, the, Uh, injunction sought would be impossible to grant. She said the claim is one that has uh, absorbed a good deal of time and cost. Uh, More court resources have been used uh, than should have been used uh, through multiple applications. I can see no real basis why this needs any further consideration. Uh, The correct answer in this case is to say that the application is dismissed. Now, she uh, initially refused to allow that to go to appeal. Uh, but in fact, they are continuing to see what options they have uh, on on this. Now, in the meantime today, uh, during Mayor's questions, uh, Sadiq Khan was asked about, uh, well, first of all, would the price go up uh, in the future? Uh, And he said this, it's not inconceivable that in the future, uh, at some date, the congestion charge could go up or down, ULUS could go up and down, or the low emission zone could go up or down as it did in the past. Uh, But he was also asked about uh, per mile charging, Uh, and he said uh, a pay per mile scheme is off the table, not on his radar. That's what he was saying today. But unfortunately, only a few months ago, uh, he was saying this. He said that the ultimate destination is a smart road user charging scheme in London. We've been looking around the world about what sort of schemes they have. Uh, and he said, uh, what we want is a scheme that can treat each driver differently in relation to the time you're driving, the distance you're driving, and if there are good alternatives with public transport and how polluting your vehicle is. So, okay, uh, maybe to the letter, he was telling the truth in the sense that he's not looking at a per, per mile uh, charging scheme as such, but he certainly per mile is part of what he's looking at uh, in any case. Uh, but I thought I would uh, end this segment on you, Les. Um, with this report from car Dealer. Uh, London used car dealers urged to send non us compliant part exchanges to Ukraine. I just, I don't even know where to start with this. So let's just look at the text. London car dealers are being urged to consider sending non-ultra-low emission zone compliant cars used, uh, sorry, used cars to Ukraine to help the war effort. Charity Car for Ukraine is urging dealers to think about donating diesel 4x4s or pickup trucks for use on the front line rather than refuse taking them in part exchange altogether. So uh, of course, people have found that uh, since uh, ULES has been expanded, that the value of their cars has plummeted. Uh, And what these people are now saying is, we should send them to Ukraine so that Ukraine can become the dumping ground of the world. Because of course, once they're on the front front line, they're not going to last too long. Uh, Vanessa, I'm going to start with you. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I mean, when you told me this earlier, I I, I think it was disbelief. I mean, so what, Ukraine now becomes landfill for the UK's scrap cars? I mean, because that's effectively what it is, right?
0: That is exactly what it seems to be. And now I understand that uh, that particular charity car for Ukraine has already shipped uh, two and a half million pounds worth of cars over to Ukraine. And uh, so we're we're covering the country with uh, depleted uranium and... Uh, heavy weaponry being blown up and so on. Uh, The cleanup costs after this are going to be horrendous and uh, it's just really a disgrace. (laughs) So uh, let's uh, leave that with people to think about and move on to uh, this, back to the UK Health Security Agency. Um, So they are uh, very happy that the SARIN study uh, has been revamped. So this is SARIN 2.0. It began uh, at the beginning of September. Uh, and this, of course, sarin was originally uh, set up at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in inverted commas in June 2020. Um, and that sarin stands for SARS-CoV-2 Immunity and Reinfection Study. Uh, and it has been all about c- continually testing healthcare workers across the UK for COVID-19 uh, to provide crucial information relating to the virus. Um, so let's just have a look at the crucial information. So they've done... Uh, the original sarin test did 1.1 million PCR tests, 420,000 blood tests, 44,500 uh, healthcare workers were involved, uh, for all four UK nations, and uh, 135 NHS trusts. So what they're saying is that uh, they're recruiting participants from the original 45,000 healthcare workers uh, that took part in the original test. Uh, They're saying that it remains the largest study of its kind globally, and that they've expanded their collaborations with the Wellcome-Sanger Institute and the Worldwide Influenza Center and the Francis Crick Institute to ensure that they can continue to address important scientific questions. So that should make us all feel uh, wonderful. But even better, uh, Yellow Card is back in the news uh, because the MHRA has decided to launch uh, a, 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 a Yellow Card uh, site in Belfast in Northern Ireland, uh, all intended to strengthen patient safety. So uh, apparently there are six MHRA commissioned regional yellow card centres now, uh, one at Birmingham, one in Cardiff, Edinburgh, uh, Liverpool, Newcastle, and now Belfast. Um, they said this: uh, the yellow card scheme enables the MHRA to monitor safety concerns such as suspected side effects or adverse incidents involving healthcare products. These include medicines, vaccines, blood factors, and immunoglobulin products, medical devices, e-cigarettes, and complementary therapies such as homeopathies. Um, So uh, that's good news. Now, here's Alison Cave, uh, the chief safety officer at the MHRA. And, uh, well, this is what she had to say. uh, Patient safety is our top priority. So that's uh, more good news. It never ends. Now, of course, the MHRA has never properly published uh, the yellow card data Uh, for the COVID-19 vaccines, and of course, as we see more and more uh, reports of adverse reactions uh, as a result of COVID-19 vaccines, uh, they aren't really updating the yellow card scheme anymore, the the yellow card database for COVID vaccines anymore. So clearly, patient safety is their top priority, and of course, there's no particular acknowledgement uh, that any of the adverse reactions uh, have uh, been as a result of uh, COVID-19 vaccines at all. So uh, let's uh, move on then to this. I just wanted to to mention this very briefly uh, because we saw uh, over the last uh, couple of days, weeks, uh, strange earthquake lights spotted above Morocco moments before the devastating tremors uh, remained a mystery, said the Independent. Uh, And uh, let's see what we have here from the Jerusalem Post. Mysterious flash illuminates, sorry, illuminates Moroccan sky moments before earthquake. Ominous sign, uh, the a subhead uh, lights captured in Moroccan sky before destructive earthquake are similar to those witnessed in Turkey. Uh, but of course, we had to leave it to the Daily Mail to bring the conversation right into the gutter, never mind the fact that uh, you know lots of people died in this. Uh, this was their coverage. Mysterious lights were spotted in the sky before Morocco's devastating earthquake hit last week, and scientists don't know what caused them. Uh, well, is that true? We'll see in a second. Uh, but the, the key point here is, Uh, While the clips have not been verified, the unexplained sightings have baffled onlookers, with some suggesting that a UFO or lightning could be to blame. Uh, So they bring the conversation to a hugely uh, intelligent level. Um, So what would be causing these lights? Well, it's been discussed for many, many um, years. What might be the cause of lights that are commonly seen uh, just before uh, earthquakes? Um, In terms of the actual video clip itself, Uh, One explanation might be that power lines were coming down, of course, Uh, but this is another uh, thing that is uh, very much a possibility, and that is the piezoelectric effect in quartz-rich rocks. Uh, So this is a scientific paper talking about that. Uh, Now, (laughs) what they they commonly say is that uh, earthquake lights include bluish flames that uh, uh, appear to come out of the ground at ankle height, orbs of light called ball lightning that float in the air for tens of seconds or even minutes, quick flashes of bright light that resemble uh, regular lightning strikes, uh, except they come out of the ground instead of out of the sky, and so on. Um, So this is uh, a likely uh, explanation. And we should make the point that uh, uh, the area uh, just around Marrakesh is absolutely full of quartz. And this is uh, sort of a requirement in order to have this type of uh, event happen. Finally, I just want to end with this. Now, there's been quite a bit in the uh, press today and yesterday over the online safety bill, which continues to uh, go through parliament. And in one of the reports, I saw them highlighting a full fact tweet from 2022. And because they mentioned it in the report, I thought I would bring it back on screen uh, here today because uh, I thought it was quite interesting. This is full fact tweeting out that freedom of expression is at at risk while lessons from pandemic are forgotten in the online safety bill. Too much power is being left with internet companies. Decisions about freedom of expression should be made openly and democratically. And I did find it a little ironic that full fact was worried about freedom of expression when they seem to be doing quite a lot to try to shut that down. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is this was the uh, graphic that went with that tweet from Will Moy, the chief executive. And he's saying, uh, he said at the time, we know that people have died because of the misinformation surrounding COVID-19. And he went on to say, we need a bill that protects all citizens online from harmful misinformation and threats to freedom of expression. So I'd just like to consider that for one second, because uh, first of all, we know that people have died from, uh, because of the misinformation surrounding COVID-19. The question is, is that statement correct? I would suggest that, yes, it is correct. Uh, if you consider that everything that came out of the mouths of the British government with respect to COVID-19 was misinformation. Uh, And that caused hospitals to panic, perhaps, putting people on ventilators that maybe didn't need to be, or throwing people out of hospitals and into care homes at an inappropriate moment. So I think there's no question that misinformation did cause the deaths of people around COVID-19. And then he said, we need a bill that protects all citizens online from harmful misinformation and threats to freedom of of expression. And I think that's true too, uh, because as we have, as we know, most of the harmful misinformation that we witness these days comes from, at least in the UK, from the British government uh, with respect to health, with respect to war, uh, Ukraine and so on. Uh, and maybe we'll want to think a little bit about that, about whether, about whose speech actually needs to be regulated. Is it the speech of uh, the general public or is it the speech of the British government and the mainstream press? Um, we'll leave you to think about that. Now we've got to we've got to end there. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, with some extra uh, Kvork hopefully will stay with us, but certainly Vanessa and I will be there. Uh, we will see you then in a couple of minutes for that if you're a UK call member. Otherwise, uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Bye-bye.